Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. In September 2020, Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs is supporting The Roots of Music. The Roots of Music empowers the youth of New Orleans through music education, academic support, and mentorship while preserving and promoting the unique musical and cultural heritage of the city. This month, we're donating 10% of Mastis revenue to The Roots of Music. For more about what they do and how you can help, check them out at therootsofmusic.org. If you'd like to participate in our sponsorship of music-related organizations, become a Mastis patron at patreon.com slash Mastis. Thanks for listening. Oh, those funky horns. I love them so. I have a good romance with those horns. I am your co-host, Sarah D. Bunting, and I am here, as always, with the plain old spectacular Mark Blankenship. <laughs> Hello, Mark. Hello. I'm wearing giant monster boots. <laughs> Made of pork. I'm just kidding. Um, welcome to episode 203, I still can't believe it, of Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs. Mark, you have brought us today's topic. Tell us more. All right. Today I have brought to the table Lady Gaga's 2009 hit, Bad Romance, which was in the beginning of the second wave of Gaga-ness that the culture uh, metabolized. It was the f- it was the first single from the Fame Monster, which was the EP that followed up the Fame. So the Fame was the one that gave us um, just dance, poker face, love game, paparazzi, and then bang, here comes Bad Romance. And this is a song that I very much wanted to talk about because we have talked about Lady Gaga before, Sarah, in the Oscars episode where we talked about her Star Is Born song yes. versus Barbara's Star Is Born song. And I feel like that at this point, Lady Gaga has been around as a musical presence uh, for like 12 years, which I can't believe that it's already been 12 years. But Yes, God, I know. But it is very clear that Lady Gaga is here to stay. It is very clear that she is exceptionally skilled and um, really one of those, I think, guaranteed for the Hall of Fame musicians of recent times. Oh, yeah. But I feel like one of the things that is so interesting about Lady Gaga is that she proves herself over and over again to be a master musical mimic. Like on the Stars Born soundtrack, she really is able to put on the drag of a uh, sort of country musician for some of those songs. And then she puts on mm-hmm. the drag of pop star. And I think I'm actually remembering, I may have made this exact point about her during the Stars Born episode. And on her brilliant song, Edge of Glory, she she gives us the vibe of 80s Pat Benatar style rock. On her new album, Chromatica, she's giving us the uh, hyper-caffeinated version of the Max Martin style pop that's zipping around and zipping around the world for a long time. But I think that on Bad Romance, and this is the argument I want to explore after we hear the clip, Lady Gaga actually sounds only like Lady Gaga. And to me, Bad Romance is the one song that best encapsulates the things that Lady Gaga does when, to my mind, she is being unlike anyone else. And that's one of the reasons I find this song so very exciting. Uh, but before we dig into all of that, let's hear a clip. 
so excited that you clipped this exact part. Ooh, tell me more. This is, uh, I think, if you had to explain to someone from outer space or who had been in a coma since 2007 or whatever, like what, uh, like boil it down for me. Why do we care about this artist? This is Lady Gaga in one minute in this sense. Yep. Um, th- there is this, like the, the song begins as this like danceable battle cry. And as you move into the section that we just heard, you begin to see this like elementally Germanati thing, which is the extremely brightly and heavily defended um, creature, like that that wall or that armor cracks. And you see this, you know, fierce but tiny warrior, and then you actually hear, like, this is a this is a person. Like, this is not a war machine. This is a person. Um, and there is that, like, I've made this comparison pretty recently on the on the podcast. I think that, like, Thelma Houston, like the the rage and the pain make the disco song more danceable and not less yes and that is sort of gaga's great gift is that she takes whatever um genre or style she's in and puts it around her as a as an armored defense but then you're still able to see and hear her inside um like a kind of wizard of oz thing i guess in the end um and I think that is her great, I mean, her voice is stunning and beautiful and powerful, but that um, there's this like reflecting line of mirrors that she uses it to create around her in terms of image, in terms of um, protection, um, and that she can get all of that into almost all of her song craft is really something. And also the song is just good yeah. at the same time. God, so, and yeah. I think maybe having watched that documentary about her, which was like pretty good, not great, but that sense of this, you know, human person with human frailties um, who is um, like brought into our company by this unbelievably powerful voice. Like I talked in the Oscars episode about that moment in that song where like you can hear the air around her ionizing yes. because you're about to be fired out of the cannon of her voice is like, I mean, it's just amazing to listen to, but then its ability to become its own metaphor 
is, I, I don't know, for a like someone who majored in the analysis of literature, it's it's really something that, it, you know, it's it's its own synecdoche somehow. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but that clip was a perfect distillation of what makes her a great vocalist and a great artist and a fascinating personage as well. I could reach through this microphone and give you a big kiss on the cheek. Uh, This is why our pod marriage works, because you have (laughs) really articulated some of the things that I have been thinking as well. And I just want to say how much I agree with you that one of the things that I love about her is that she is constantly putting on these personae. When I said that at the beginning about Lady Gaga is often putting on this various musical drags, I did not mean that as a, that was not an insult. That was actually a high compliment because you're so right that what I find thrilling about her is that she puts on all of these different musical identities and then inevitably when it's really working, she cracks them open and shows you the raw emotion that she is so good at communicating. And it's like the story she keeps telling us over and over and over again is, look, in this country song, in this dance song, in this rock song, in this pop song about asses, there is actually the seed of something very vulnerable. And I will show it to you. Get fucking ready. And it makes me think about her, the song on the Star is Born soundtrack, Is That All Right? Which is just like, I don't know if you know that one, but she's like, um, nothing you say wouldn't interest me. And it's just her and a piano. Yeah. And it would seem like that would be Lady Gaga just being vulnerable. But what she also has this capacity to do is make the most extra melodramatic gestures so that sometimes the drama of the performance is the shell that she's in. And then in in the song, Is That All Right?, she breaks that shell open by letting her voice crack in this really high little sob. And you're like, fuck, I thought she was just doing a simple acoustic song. No, she was building another persona that she could then break apart. And the way you phrase that really helps me see that so clearly across her entire career thus far. So thank you for that. Well, and the use of the word drag is advised and I think intentional on her part as well. I just keep coming back to her Super Bowl performance and I often do when I'm thinking about her, even when I'm just like, whatever, hearing poker face or someone mentions the meat dress or whatever, that it's like, that was such a Trojan horse of a like cultural moment that this is the like most aggressively um, hyper masculine fucked up shared cultural event of the year, basically. Um, That there's like all this violence, um, but there's also all of this exclusion. um, And that it's, you know, there's this plantation system that feeds into the NFL and most pro sports, let's face it. And then she is this very outre, um, a open ally, basically wearing a disco ball with like football pads over it, and that this person is performing at the Super Bowl, this like tiny woman, um, and her like that her, drag is so much a part of her um, art, and that she would be doing it at the Super Bowl, which is like so intolerant. Of yes. everything except jorts wearing MAGA masculinity is 
um, I just remember feeling almost like there were tears in my eyes almost at what a, um, I don't know what the word is, like what a welcome intrusion from my world into that world it was to see this. And I mean, again, she's bitty. She's so little. But I have no, I have no um, qualms about thinking that she could kick my ass or anyone's, <laughs> honestly. You know, Even with chronic pain, she'd just be like, come here, I want to tell you something. Stomp. Like, good. So let's take a quick break from talking about Lady Gaga to talk about um, sort of one of Lady Gaga's progenitor groups, the B-52s, and specifically a video as requested by George. Mark, can you tell us more? Yes, George, our listener, contacted us and asked us if we would be willing to do an analysis of their music video for Deadbeat Club. And we thought that was a great idea. And I also just want to read to you a little bit of George's reasoning. He says... Deadbeat Club is part of a genre of music video for me that I'm calling pandemic escapism. Basically, it's a music video of things that before 2020 weren't spectacular, but now are like, I want to go to their Liz Lemon gif, which he writes out in actual words, which amuses <laughs> I love me. That. So and um, he says that the reason why he thinks Deadbeat Club is the best example of pandemic escapism is that the song itself has that 2020 vibe best exemplified by the opening line, what? Get a job? What for? I'm trying to think. The feeling with the retro black and white music video of people looking fabulous at awesome parties, listening to music, dancing close to someone, having a conversation, and just being social is exactly what anyone that has been cooped up for almost six months needs. And uh, I'd say George is hitting the nail right on the head with that one, Sarah. I think that's really, I think that's so true. But I also think, and I have always thought that, um, I mean, first of all, I love this song. um, And I've always loved this song. And it has been stuck in my head for days now. And um, I love to sing it to the cats. And they do the, what for? I'm trying to think parts. (laughs) Of course, yes. <laughs> Get a job. Um, but I mean, I love the song, but I've also always thought that the video like doesn't quite match up with the mood, the experiential mood of listening to the song and what I have always felt the song is kind of about, which is this, if I may. Okay, please do. The Deadbeat Club speaks very strongly to me, and this could totally be me projecting, speaks very strongly to me of that like almost performative outsidery community that some kids form, theater kids, lit mag kids, um, of being like... I feel very attacked right now, Sarah. <laughs> uh, you you shouldn't. Um, I think this is a natural part of growing up and feeling like your milieu doesn't really... Like, you don't belong to each other. Like, you and where you grew up and who you grew up around, mostly. So when you find your people, when you find your own deadbeat club... There is, I mean, there is like sincere community in it, but there's also a lot of performative like, oh my God, we're such weirdos, like just being super loud in the middle of the mall and being annoying, but also feeling like finally my people with whom I can be an annoying adolescent. Mm -hmm. So 
there is a an extreme um, compassion for and fondness for that feeling. I think throughout the B fifty twos work, like this high tolerance of the high volume of the like alienated theater slash lit mag child. But usually it's much more like bright and fun. And this particular track is a little more um, contemplative, I guess. But then the video is just all the aspirational aspects of this song and this feeling of community um, of old or of your, um, and none of the, like a little bit, a little bit, not sadness, but like, I, I don't know, just like being very on in order to keep feelings of social fear at bay. I could be reading way too much into this, but that's always been my feeling about the video, which is still extremely enjoyable to watch, but doesn't necessarily track with what you're expecting from the song as a narrative well before we move on let's listen to a little clip of the song deadbeat club uh, so we can orient ourselves yes let us I mean, it's like fun, but it's not totally happy. There is that feeling of like, I'm waiting for my real life to start. And I think I listened to the B-52s less once I went to college and felt like I was with less of a like a forced group of deadbeat clubbers. Nothing against my running mates in high school, but you know. Anyway. Okay, well, I had the Cosmic Thing tape in 89, 90, somewhere, mm-hmm. and there was definitely a Columbia House purchase. Mm-hmm. And Cosmic Thing, of course, is the album that this song is on. But I was too young at that time to really listen to anything that wasn't Rome or Love Shack. I, sure. I was 11 years old, so I wasn't really someone who was going to dig deep into the rest of the tape. It just wasn't how I was at the time. <laughs> no. So the only thing I remembered about this song until I started preparing for this episode was Fred Schneider going, Dead Beat Club! And um, <laughs> he's hard to forget, Fred Schneider. He, yeah, that's one way of putting it. So I came to this song at 41, really, because it was like in the last few hours, really, that I really was listening to it closely. And I've listened to it like six times and can't get enough of it. And yeah. I... I am having a very different interpretation of what the song and video are doing. I think that you are absolutely right that it's about being um, with that group of weirdos that makes you feel safe and that also you're performing with. Uh Oh, my God. I mean, that's like so perfectly said. But I see the song as being a wistful, nostalgic reflection on that. Oh, I think that's true also. But I think then that is why the video, which is shot in sepia and really is just featuring the current members of the B-52s and like Michael Stipe is in there yeah. <laughs> looking very hot in his 91 way. I think that this video is a celebration of the things about that group of people that doesn't need performativity. I think this is a group of artists 
remembering what it was like when they were young artists together. You know, they're talking about an Athens restaurant where they would go get quarter beers and uh-huh. listen to Question Mark and the Mysterians. But I think this to me is like we are feeling generous enough to our younger selves to excise all of the performative fear and just celebrate the nostalgia that that not, not the nostalgia, but have nostalgia for the like best parts of those times. And to me, that's where the like wistfulness comes in is because right. they're old enough to know that those days are gone. And for instance, I find it shocking to realize that Kate Pearson was 41 when she recorded this music video. Oh my God. And uh, they all were in their mid to late thirties or early forties. So I, and I think it's because I am 41 listening to it now. And I'm like, I cannot fucking believe that I am Kate Pearson's age in this video. What? It's really hard for me to accept. But um, so I I feel that to my eye and ear, the video um, perfectly encapsulates what I think the song is going for. But, you know, agree to disagree. Well, I think that it takes a, I think you're right that it does that. And it leaves only the aspirational parts. And because so much of the B-52s is like this, um, you know, retro feeling in their uh, presentation... Uh, but like, you know, let's dance in the garden in torn sheets in the rain, like, you know, but that's, that's like, but- yeah, like that's exactly what you, when I was, when I was listening to this tape, when it came out, I was 16 and this is exactly the kind of, um, performatively wacky thing that you would, that you would think to do and that you would think to sing about, um, and again, like I'm not, I'm not judging my old self or the B-52's old selves. It's just an interesting choice that they went completely with the positive, nostalgic aspects of the of the song and of their past. It's neat. Yes. So, and again, um, to me, interesting and uh, grade A to you, interesting, perhaps grade B minus. <laughs> oh, well, but, I mean, the song is like a, a plus, even at your oh, school. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> oh, shit. Never let it go. That's right. Thank you for carrying the torch of my anger on that. I, um, it no, is I, legitimate, and I carry it on your behalf cheerfully. Well, so I know, but I think we both agree that the song is an A plus. Oh, yeah, and honestly, for sure. if, and thank you, for, George, for um, having us revisit it. It's really been. It's like a perfect song for my the week that I happen to be having. So thanks. And I would say seriously, George, thank you. Because if it weren't for this request, I would never have listened to this song ever. It's possible I never would have heard it again. And I'm now I'm like, I could have been enjoying this song for decades. I'm glad I finally got there. And it's like, 11-year-old Mark with the tape, what were you thinking? Why didn't you pay more attention? Anyway. You were 11. Um, I also, Forgive yourself. I was 11. It's fine. Um, I also do want to add that if you would like us to discuss a music video on this here program, just shoot us an email at talkaboutsongs at gmail.com, and we'll let you know how to make that happen. And I'm pretty sure that that's a part of certain levels of Patreon involvement. Is that not so? Uh, That is true. I guess I could have been clearer about that. George got this video request because of his Patreon level on Patreon. Uh, But, you know... There are many ways to get us to talk about a music video, but the easiest way is to uh, to become a patron at George's level. It's true. Hey, 
And you know, there've been a lot of comparisons between Madonna and Lady Gaga. And I think you've just touched on one of the reasons that those comparisons are apt because Madonna's Super Bowl performance was also just this swirl of outre feminine power. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. it was just, and Lady Gaga did it in her way too. And it's just like really nice when those things can happen. And I think also, as is true with Madonna, all of Lady Gaga's posturing and identity and performance of identity would be moot if the songs were not also good. And Bad Romance is a fucking baller, banger, A-plus song. And the reason, in fact, that I clipped this uh, section is, for, for me, I just love that she goes into French for a few bars yeah. Like, why the fuck not? <laughs> well, if it is good enough for the Belinda Carlyle, yeah, it is oui, good oui. enough for moi. Ooh, hey, Belinda. She's right over there. <laughs> ooh, hey, ooh. Um, ooh, hey, Belinda. <laughs> ooh, hey, Belinda. Belinda. It's so true. You know, Lady Gaga <laughs> is all is able to do all of these things, these very brilliant, multi-level things about performance, but then she's also able to sing nonsense syllables and French and make you be like, yep, that's my shit. And I think mm-hmm. the reason that, for me, this song really stands out as the most Lady Gaga hit of all is because I cannot imagine another pop star doing this. I can imagine another pop star making a song like Shallow or Marry the Night or even, honestly, Just Dance. But, like, Poker or Face... Poker Face. Like, Poker Face is... Uh, I, like, I think I like it a little bit more mm. than I... Then I like this one, but I think this one is much more her, whereas Poker Face is a little more Madonna, actually. Yeah, it's like Poker Face is Lady Gaga ramping up to a completely singular artistic statement. And again, I want to say, the the singularity of Gaga's artistry, as we keep saying, is the way that she inhabits these personae. But then on a song like this, it's like, I'm going to show you all of that warrior spirit and that vulnerability in a musical container that doesn't sound like anybody else's musical container. And like this song has so many sections. It has so many parts. It has so many different elements. Like there's the French and the chanting and the big belted notes and then all of those stacked vocals. And I think it's also really important to note that she wrote this song alone. Well, I'm sorry. She wrote the song with just one other collaborator, a guy who goes by the name of Red One. So it was really just her and this one other person. And I think that they've just built this statement for her here that, um, like you said, in, in 65 seconds, that one clip encapsulates all of the shit that she's up to. And I don't know, Sarah, how well you know or if you've seen the video for this song. I don't know it. Oh, shit. You you really can treat yourself to the video. Um, it is the... It is the visual. Uh, it is the visual that explains Lady Gaga better than anyone else. I will just say this: there is a scene in the video where she is walking in slow motion with a cape that is made out of a bear skin, and the head of the bear is dragging behind her, and she's walking slowly toward a bed that's on fire. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yes. I, I think that she's also so. Um, intelligent and in control of the the imagery and when the like how high up the walls are and how thick they are and like even her name like lady gaga has so much in it yes and i was thinking about that um and then i was also thinking like the first sort of like there's a gazillion 
associations with Lady, but also with Gaga, which is like nonsense, baby talk. But then my first thought is always about Radio Gaga. I think that that's actually, I think that song is what inspired her name, if I'm not mistaken. But think about, I mean, I think probably at least once a week about how the world is just a shittier place without Freddie Mercury in it. Mm -hmm. And I have thought that on a semi, like, you know, I might as well have a calendar like setting for it that it's like, (laughs) just a reminder, we're without Freddie. Buck up, everybody. But I, I think about that so frequently and as we're talking about this, I think about how similar Freddie and Queen's whole like Trojan horse, like we are these arena rockers, but like what we're actually doing that you claim not to get is actually the point. Yes. And he also had this, there was also this like defense that he had with this band and this persona and like I have satin wings on this jumpsuit that's cut down to the treasure trail and you know who will fight me but then that voice that life like I don't know just what a what a hero of culture I have always thought and as I said we are poorer without him but on the minor plus side if he were alive, they absolutely would have collaborated and it would have been like literally a psychological nuclear bomb that would have devastated everyone <laughs> and there would have been no point in continuing with pop music or even talking. It's true. Yeah, you're right. I guess that's like, the silver we lining. We wouldn't have deserved it and we didn't get it. It would have been Yay? it would have been <laughs> nuclear winter, I guess, in a certain way. Yes. Anyway, that's my, once again, welcome back to my grand unifying theory of the fact that Freddie Mercury's um, sad and untimely demise has led us directly to this point in human history, (laughs) AMA. (laughs) And I have no way of proving this, but I think that the French section was something that she did spontaneously. It's yeah, possible it that she planned it all, but it sounds and feels so spontaneous. Like someone who has that Freddie Mercury style swagger being like, okay, now watch this, bitch. Mm. And I just yeah. really love the guts of that. Yeah, I believe I remember my brother telling me and he saw her like just playing in basements 20, 25 years ago. I think they overlapped at NYU. Oh, sure. Somehow he'd seen her a couple of times and I think they, I don't know if they like knew each other. They had mutual friends, something. I don't know. I don't want to, you know, <laughs> I don't want to six degrees myself into uh, the Gaga verse um, without, without receipts. But this was, you know, like that she would throw in like, she's playing, she'd throw in like a few bars of Schubert or like, um, Vanessa Paradis (laughs) covers. Why not? Yeah, because she could. And it's like, who like who else would a think that it would be a good idea to like play Jola Taxi as like a I don't know cover like a mournful folky cover, but also could get away with it. (laughs) My brother's like, I mean, this is almost terrible, and yet it's really brilliant. Uh, I don't know. (laughs) So I agree. 
I I think that totally tracks. Like this is somebody who we were saying in the last episode, like, you know, there's a, there are certain things you don't have a grounding in, so you can't necessarily speak to them as well. But I think this is somebody who has just been steeped in all the kinds of pop music, even when you're talking about the 1840s. Yeah. So good for her. And honestly, it's the reason why I will always be interested to see what she does next. Even if I don't love whatever's happening this time, I feel certain that there will be something coming up that I will love. And it's been the case throughout her whole now at this point, uh, 12 year career where I haven't loved everything, but she consistently is making things that I want to hear again. And uh, that's, she's very exciting in that. Yeah. And um, she also, I think has made a little um, safe place or like an umbrella for artists who are not quite at that level but have a similar sort of thing to say about the difficulty of existing as a woman in the world and in pop music, like Kesha, like Alesha Cara, like there are a number of other voices that are sort of like, I don't know, trying to, trying to um, not sneak it in, but trying to bring, uh, trying to repackage um pain and sorrow and trauma in a and just sort of get it to us in different ways um that i think even if they aren't direct like descendants mm-hmm. of lady gaga they owe a lot to her ability to do that and make it look like she's just making a club track so yeah ah well what a pleasure to get to talk about this. Uh, oh, one last geeky thing I have to say. This is so dumb. So the year that she was nominated for uh, Best Actress and Best Original Song, which, of course, we talked about, and she won that Oscar for A Star is Born, was also the year that the movie Roma was uh, nominated for lots of Oscars. And I, I wondered sometimes if she ever heard at an award ceremony someone say, and the winner is Roma, and then she went, Roma, Roma, ma, Roma, Roma, ma. I want to believe it happened at least once. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> you know, lest we end on too cerebral a <laughs> note. Well, really. and Sarah Talked About Songs is hosted by Mark Blankenship, a.k.a. me, and Sarah D. Bunting, and it's edited by Sarah D. Bunting as well. Do you want to talk to Mark and Sarah about song requests, ads, or birthday readings? Email us at talkaboutsongs at gmail.com, tweet us at TalkSongs, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mastus.podcast. To become a supporter and producer of this podcast, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash mastus, where you can get access to all kinds of cool bonus content and vote in our ranking episodes. Thanks for listening. This is your life. Don't play hard to get. It's a free-
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.